The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Disability Matters with your host, Joyce Bender. All comments, views, and opinions expressed on this show are solely those of the host, guest, and callers. Now the host of Disability Matters, here's Joyce Bender. And welcome to the show, everyone. My favorite month because it is ADA month. Every year for the past 11 years now, I focus in July because, of course, July 26th is the anniversary of the signing of the ADA, bringing on different disability rights leaders that I believe have had the biggest impact. And so today it would be someone that I think so highly of. I can't believe I've known him so long. I was thinking about it today, and I realized, wow, I've known him since like 1997. I mean, way back. I've known him a very long time, and I have seen him continue to lead the country, lead the disability group. Um, You know, one thing I can say about him, he is the real deal. He really, really cares about people with disabilities. Uh, I think so highly of him, and he is my friend, the Executive Director of the Association of University Centers on Disability, AUCD, Andy Imperato. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Joyce. It's great to be here. Well, it's great to have you here. And, And I thought, since this is ADA Month, that we could start by talking about you and your life living with a disability, uh, especially in light of all the things happening in our country right now. So how about if you share with our listeners when you first discovered you had a disability and your own reaction to what happened? Sure. Um, So, uh, Joyce, as you know, I have bipolar disorder, and I had my first serious episode of depression during my last semester of law school. So I was 24. Uh, I was in the, the kind of January of 1990, and I was a visiting student at Harvard Law School, and I actually had a class with President Obama. We had local government law together that semester. when He was a student there. He was the editor of the Law Review. Um, and I went kind of quickly from being kind of a, visiting student who talked a lot in class and was having fun kind of in a different environment to having trouble getting up, getting out of bed. Um, I lost all of my self-confidence and self-esteem and I lost my energy and uh, it happened very quickly. Um, Luckily, I had gotten married the summer before to the right person, uh, Betsy, who you know, Joyce, and um, Betsy, you know, helped me get through it. I felt like at that point in my life, I was kind of on a conveyor belt. It was my last semester of law school, and she helped me kind of stay on the conveyor belt, and I graduated, and I ended up working in legal services doing supplemental security income advocacy that summer. 
And then I clerked for a federal judge and then did a fellowship at the Disability Law Center in Boston, where Christine Griffin is now the executive director. And while I was doing the fellowship, I got a bipolar diagnosis. And after working there for about a year, I started being open about my own you know, experience with bipolar disorder professionally and personally. Um, and, uh, you know, I found a support network in Boston, uh, the independent living movement, the psychiatric survivor movement, the disability community, you know, the, the attorneys with disabilities who worked in my office. Um, you know, they all kind of encouraged me to be out with my disability, to see it as a source of credibility and strength for the work that I was doing. And, you know, I really give thanks that I was able to kind of develop a disability identity alongside of my professional identity, and I didn't, you know, kind of buy into the general messages that we get as a society that lawyers are not supposed to be human, they're not supposed to be disabled, they're supposed to be superhuman, and that, you know, the concept of being a very capable lawyer with bipolar disorder was not a message that I heard when I was in law school or before law school, but it was a message I heard from the disability community in, in Boston, and it, it got me on a good path. What, so, Andy, when this happened to you uh, and the diagnosis, what, as you know, I'm living with epilepsy, uh, and, you know, people were strange about this at the beginning. Uh, how about you? What was the reaction of people you knew? Well, it's funny, Joyce, for every negative reaction story I can remember from my early years, you know, coming out and telling people about my diagnosis, I can remember so many positive reactions, kind of unexpected positive reactions. One of my favorite positive reactions was when I told one of my most important mentors at that at that point in my life was a constitutional law professor at Stanford, which is where I graduated from named Gerald Gunther. Uh, Professor Gunther had clerked for uh, Chief Justice Earl Warren on the Supreme Court. He had clerked for Learned Hand, who was a very important appellate judge, and he was a leading authority on constitutional law and had one of the most important case books on constitutional law. And I called him to tell him about my diagnosis uh, from Boston. And the first thing he said when I told him I was bipolar, he said, you're in good company, and that's the way his voice sounded. <laughs> and he he had just uh, written a biography of Learned Hand, you know, who he loved and you know who he had stayed in touch with, and he was convinced that Learned Hand was bipolar. So you know, for me to have my mentor not see it as a negative, but actually as a positive connection to one of the people that he had the most respect for in the legal profession, that was incredibly powerful for me. Um, and the other thing, Joyce, and I know you've experienced this when you're telling people about your experience with epilepsy or with hearing loss, is when you put it out there, other people start sharing their own experience. And that's happened to me throughout my career. You know, as a manager, uh, you know, people that I'm managing are more comfortable talking to me about their depression, their anxiety, their obsessive compulsive disorder, whatever it is. And then just out there in the world, I find I, I establish deeper connections to other people because I, I share this part of who I am, and then they want to share with me things that they might not otherwise share. 
So overall, Joyce, I would say, even though I certainly have experienced negative reactions, uh, I have experienced so much more positive from being out and open with my mental health you know, diagnosis than I have experienced negative. Well, Andy, I, you know, I don't know if you realize this, but through your being open and, you know, outspoken about your disability, I can't even begin to think how many people you have helped. I mean, I can't even think how many thousands and thousands of people that would be. Because it would be one thing if I could say, oh, yeah, Andy, you and about 20 other people um, with bipolar disorder or depression or personality disorder, whatever it is, talk about this. But, you know, they don't. And so, you know, you, you have really impacted a lot of people. And I think that is so awesome that you've done that. Well, thank you, Joyce. Uh, I would say the same about you. I know all the work you've done with young people with epilepsy and with the Epilepsy Foundation and all the work you do in Pittsburgh. Um, So the same is true for you. And, you know, I really appreciate your leadership and your being a role model. Well, Andy, you know, you you are one of these people. You know, just so you all know, it's hard to give this man a compliment because he will want he is very humble. So, Andy, thank you, but what you have done is tremendous. Um, I, I just so highly respect you for what you have done. But you know what, Andy? Many people have a disability, but not everyone decides, you know what? I'm going to be an advocate. I'm going to talk about this. You know, I want to help the disability community. What was the trigger or the thing that made you decide you were going to be an advocate? Well, it's interesting. Um, I think, I don't know if you know this, Joyce, but when I was an undergraduate, I studied Italian Renaissance culture. So I wasn't thinking a lot about politics or policy as an undergrad. And when I got to law school, um, for the first time in my life, I was surrounded by people who were very politically active and very left-leaning, and they all seemed to have kind of a pragmatic idea of what they were going to do to change the world. So my classmates in law school really inspired me. This happened very quickly, like within the first few weeks of law school. My social group became this wonderful group of law students who wanted to change the world for all kinds of constituencies. So in law school, I I quickly decided I wanted to do public interest law, I did not want to be a traditional lawyer working for a big law firm, and I wasn't particularly interested in making a lot of money. And so I knew, you know, from an early point in law school that I wanted to help poor people. I wanted to help people that did not have easy access to lawyers. And my first job after law school was at Legal Services doing SSI advocacy, and that was really my introduction to the world of disability. Um, And I ended up applying for... uh, fellowship to implement a Supreme Court decision that made it easier for children to qualify for SSI, and that's what I was doing at the Disability Law Center. But, you know, it's funny. I I think I decided to become an advocate before my disability manifested, and then after my disability kicked in, it, it gave a focus to my advocacy. Well, 
Speaking of advocacy, I just want to mention, you know, when I met you, Andy, it was when I was on the President's Committee, so that's why it was in the uh, 90s, the late 90s, um, and it wasn't too many years after that, I think it was 19, uh, well, wait a minute, no, it wasn't, was it the year 2000? When did you get AAPD? I joined uh, AAPD in November of 99. Okay. So I just want to mention to everyone that Andy had a tremendous impact on AAPD and, you know, growing AAPD and giving it the credibility. And you were there, what, were you there like 10 years or how long were you there? I left around November of 2010, so about 11 years. Um, and and you did so much. So uh, to all of our listeners, I don't know if you all know that, but prior to his current position and working for Senator Harkin, uh, Andy for 11 years was the CEO of the American Association of People with Disabilities, and actually that's when I got to know him the most during that time. But um, you know, Andy, you had a tremendous impact on the success of AAPD, um, and, you know, we, we need to acknowledge that and thank you for that. But now here you are in a totally different role uh, as the executive director of AUCD, um, which, as I mentioned before, is the Association of University Centers on Disabilities. Uh, can you tell us about that position uh, at AUCD and also describe AUCD to our listeners? Sure, sure. So this is um, a, a national nonprofit like AAPD, but the big difference is that our network is a network of uh, organizations and not a network of individuals. So as you know, Joyce, AAPD is an individual uh, membership organization. At least that's what it was created to be, kind of modeled after AARP. And AUCD is more of a, a collection of university centers for excellence and leadership training programs and kind of basic science research centers that are really trying to use what universities can bring to the table to try to change the world for children and adults with disabilities. And our network historically has had a strong focus on children and adults with intellectual and developmental disabilities. And then over time, the network has kind of moved into serving the broader disability community. Um, so we have uh, 67 university centers for excellence and developmental disabilities, at least one in every state and territory. So the acronym for that is a USED. And the average size of a USED is about $7 million. So they're not, they're not small programs. In Pennsylvania, Joyce, you know, we have a USED at Temple University. And then we have these leadership education and in neurodevelopmental disabilities or LEND programs. Uh, and currently there are 43 LENDs, although that number is about to go up. Uh, one of them, as you know, is in Pittsburgh at the University of Pittsburgh. And one of them is uh, at CHOP, in, uh, you know, connected to Penn in Philadelphia. Um, so... You know, and then we've got these um, hard science research centers called Intellectual and Developmental Disability Research Centers, and one of them is at CHOP also in Philadelphia, um, and those are funded by NIH. 
But I guess in a nutshell, Joyce, the way I would describe our network, if you kind of add it all together, it's a $650 million research and development arm for the disability field. And one of the things that we're developing is people. You know, we're training professionals and parent leaders and self-advocate leaders from early stages in their careers in how to serve this community and how to impact policy. Okay. This is Joyce Bender, America's Voice, where disability matters at voiceamerica.com. We'll be right back with Andy. Since 1985, Bender Consulting Services has served as a national leader in advancing employment of people with disabilities, including veterans with disabilities, with private sector companies, and federal government agencies. Bender assists customers with achieving their diversity and workforce inclusion initiatives by tapping into a talent pool of individuals seeking professional positions, including those in the STEM fields. In addition, Bender services include disability employment consulting, training and technology accessibility through their high-test line of service. For more information, please visit www.benderconsult.com. Hi, I'm Greg Grunberg from the TV show Heroes. One of my personal heroes is my son, who, like more than 3 million Americans, has epilepsy. When someone with epilepsy is having a seizure, their brain is temporarily producing more electricity than their body can handle. They can shake or stare or fall down. They can also even briefly lose consciousness. If you see someone having a seizure, please make sure they're comfortable and safe. And within a few minutes or less, the electrical overload will stop and they will be okay. To learn more, visit epilepsyfoundation.org. Thank you. American Heroes Network is a program for and about our American veteran heroes and their families. Join host Gary Ray as he shows what is being done to help our veterans and showcase the companies and organizations that are helping our veterans and their families rebuild their lives. Listen for American Heroes Network, live and powered by the Voice America Variety Channel, every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time. Dialogue is the single most powerful leadership tool we have to make a difference in the world. Leading conversations with host Cheryl Esposito creates a place for that dialogue. Tune into the Voice America Business Channel every Friday as Cheryl hosts new conversations among leaders from around the world in business, government, art, economics, and social change. We'll explore big ideas and everyday actions and learn how their own leadership has led them to discover a newfound sense of possibility in the world. Leading conversations with Cheryl Esposito, bringing big thinkers together in conversations that make a difference right here on the Voice America Business Channel every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts, we'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. If you have a question or comment, call in toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. 
Now, please welcome back the host of Disability Matters. Here's Joy Spender. And welcome back, everyone. Hey, if you just joined us, we are talking to Andy Imperato, the Executive Director of the Association of University Centers on Disabilities, known as AUCD. And, Andy, I have a question uh, about the centers. At these centers across the country, uh, is your main focus research? I mean, what is the main thing they work on? So for our university centers for excellence in developmental disabilities, um, they have core functions that they are required to do um, for their core funding, and that includes what they call pre-service preparation, which is basically about training professionals before they go out into the field and helping them get ready to serve children and adults with disabilities. They also provide services, including technical assistance, community education, and direct services, and that can be on a wide range of topics. One thing that they're working on right now is helping uh, service providers move from sheltered workshops or center-based employment to integrated employment models. Um, They do research, as you mentioned, that's a core function, and they do information dissemination, some of which is focused on um, translating the research into changing what's happening on the ground for children and adults with disabilities. Um, So those are the core functions. Research is definitely one of them. And again, the topics that they choose to research varies dramatically from center to center. Some of them are very focused on early childhood. Some of them are looking at aging issues, and they work on research on everything in between. Well, you got a lot of brain power there. I agree. I think it's a wonderful... Uh, resource for the whole disability community, and I would say one of my biggest goals in my first three years in this job has been sharing the expertise and the capacity of this network with the rest of the disability community. Yeah, which I think is very powerful. And if you are listening to the show, you really need to go to AUCD and read more about the work they're doing because they really are having an impact in this country on various policy issues and disability research issues, really a good group organization, big organization, to know more about. Um, And, Andy, how many universities did you say are part of AUCD? So, again, we have kind of three networks that are all members, and they're all dues-paying members of the association, 67 university centers for excellence, 43 leadership education programs, and 14 intellectual and developmental disability research centers. And that 43 number is about to go up. Where They're all finding out this week if they got refunded for another five years. And our expectation is that we'll have somewhere between two and seven uh, new uh, leadership education programs at the end of this week. Wow, that is great. We'll be following you. Keep up the good work you're doing. And you know what, Andy? I did do some research about all these things that AUCD is working on. Um, And one thing I thought you could talk about is the ACT Early Network. Sure. So this is um, a network that is supported by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, and also by the Maternal and Child Health Bureau, which are two big um, funders for our network at the Department of Health and Human Services. The ACT Early Network 
is disabilities at as early an age as possible and then follow up with services and interventions that will help that children um, you know, thrive and, and be successful, you know, throughout their childhood and into adulthood. Um, and the services aren't just focused on the children, but also on the families. Um, so the ACT Early Network is, a, is a, basically a group of folks who are committed to um, looking at the professionals who interact with children and making sure they have the training that they need to identify autism and other developmental disabilities uh, in infants and toddlers and, you know, have those diagnoses happen early and have the follow-up happen early. And we have a network of ACT Early Ambassadors um, who do that work at the state level, and, um, you know, a lot of them are focused on systems change. How do, how do we get the early intervention systems, the, the child care systems, you know, all the systems that children and families interact with um, to, to um, do the right kind of screening, uh, making sure that it's culturally and linguistically competent so that children from different backgrounds are getting the screening in a way that is meaningful for them. And again, again, connecting the families with resources so that um, they can get the therapies and interventions that they need as children and that the parents can learn what they need to learn to be strong advocates for their children. Yeah, that is awesome. And you know what, Andy, I don't know if you're doing this yet, but, um, it, you know, at some point in time, do you see working in other areas, uh, like, for example, dyslexia, you know, early intervention? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Our um, NIH-funded research centers, which we call our IDDRCs, or Intellectual and Developmental Display Research Centers, many of them are just doing basic brain research. And the research that they're doing has implications for all kinds of conditions involving the brain, including dyslexia, including ADHD. Um, so I know our hardcore scientists are doing work that will impact our understanding of dyslexia over time. Um, and then if you look at uh, some of our centers, I'll just give you another example. In New Jersey, our University Center for Excellence there, which is called the Boggs Center, it's named after Elizabeth Boggs, who was a very important early leader in the developmental disability field, close with Eunice Kennedy Shriver and other leaders. Um, but the Boggs Center has a group of folks who are working with the lowest performing schools in the state of New Jersey to train the teachers and the staff there to do positive behavioral interventions so that um, they can manage uh, the behaviors in the classroom so that children will have better outcomes, better educational outcomes. Interestingly, those trainings are um, making those schools do better for all children, not just children with disabilities. So the short answer to your question is we're already, many of our centers are already looking at a wider spectrum of disability issues that would include dyslexia. And again, some of them are, are doing um, trainings and interventions that benefit the entire student population, not just the students with disabilities. You know what, and that is so wonderful because this is one area, as you know, I do uh, volunteer work with high school students with disabilities, the Bender Leadership Academy, which you have spoken at and at our event for Disability Mentoring Day, which we so appreciate. Uh, but so many of the students have just been labeled stupid, dumb failure for so long that, you know, they can't read. Um, but yet they're very bright, 
And, you know, it's, it's like a lifelong label, and it's a very hurtful label. And as years go on in your life, it causes so many other problems. So I've always thought, wow, if we, I know that Dr. Sally Shaywitz talks about this a lot, but, you know, if we could do more about that, like and if AUCD could, that, that would really impact so many people. Well, and Joyce, I, I think uh, you're familiar with this new resource that was launched a couple of years ago called understood.org. But mm-hmm. if your listeners don't know about it, it's a phenomenal resource for families that have children with learning and attention-related disabilities. Like 15 nonprofits came together to build this resource. And, you know, I've been looking at it. We gave them an award. The people that worked on that on that resource, um, we gave them an award at our uh, fundraiser last March. But I'm looking at the understood.org platform as a model for how our network disseminates information to parents and to adults with disabilities because it's a state-of-the-art website with social media components. And I just feel like if we needed a model of how do you reach a lot of people with good information, I don't know anybody doing it as well as understood.org. Well, I hope then the listeners will take time to go to that if you have any questions related to learning disabilities or, you know, what we've been discussing. Because, you know, the more information you have, the better educated you are, you know, the faster you can get the good results. Uh, So thanks for bringing that up, Andy. And, Andy, last week on the show, you know, we had such, you know, time of silence and, uh, you know, prayers for the victims the victims' families, friends, survivors uh, of that horrible, horrific shooting in Orlando. And what I wanted to talk to you about is, uh, and actually I've talked on other shows to Jennifer Mathis and Kurt Decker about this, but, you know, you constantly hear the media talking about keeping guns away from people with mental health issues or psychiatric disabilities every time we've got to keep you know in in the same uh group as terrorists you know potential terrorists and people with mental health issues and i'll tell you this is creating uh a stigma that is even worse than it's been always been uh and what this is causing is greater difficulty getting employment or wanting to, you know, self-identify that you have a mental health issue. And if you don't, then you don't have coverage under the ADA. Uh, What do you think the impact of this stigma is to people with mental health issues, the discussions in the media? Well, you know, I I think a couple of things to, to keep in mind. One is I would say, the most kind of um, damaging stereotype around mental illness is the connection between mental illness and violence. You know, people talk about, uh, is this person going to go postal? You know, that that's like a shorthand for, are they going to commit a violent act because of their mental illness? And, you know, there is no data that supports the correlation between a mental health diagnosis and violence other than the fact that you're more likely to be the victim 
of a violent crime if you have a mental illness than if you don't. Um, but there's no data that shows that you're more likely to commit uh, a violent crime unless you also have a substance abuse issue. But if you don't have the substance abuse issue and you just have a mental health diagnosis, there's no data that supports that. But every time there's a high-profile crime, one of the first things the media does is try to find out if the perpetrator uh, had mental illness because they assume that if the perpetrator had mental illness, somehow that explains why they did what they did. And, and that, as you've uh, said in your question, Joyce, that just reinforces negative stereotypes and gives them kind of, you know, perpetual um, reinforcement every time something like this happens. Um, the other thing to keep in mind is most people in the United States, and this is true in other cultures as well, get the information that they have about mental illness from the media. You know, we're not learning about it in school for the most part. Um, we're not learning about it in our faith communities for the most part. We learn about it from the media. So if the only story the media is telling about mental illness is in the wake of a terrible tragedy where some human being has um, killed a bunch of other people using an assault weapon, and they turn it into a story about mental illness instead of a story about guns and easy access to guns, um, then, you know, that's the education that Americans are getting about mental illness. And then for the people that have mental health labels, they have to carry that stereotype with them everywhere they go, whether it's in a work environment, uh, you know, at home, uh, you know, if, if they're in a child custody proceeding, uh, sometimes the the, you know, family welfare system discriminates against them because of that diagnosis. They assume that they're not going to be a good parent or somehow they're going to be dangerous if they have custody of the child. So um, it's a it's a real insidious stereotype choice. And, uh, you know, I remember when Christine Griffin, our good friend Chris, was at the EEOC, she said many times that the best way to change public attitudes towards people with disabilities is by having a good experience working alongside somebody with a disability. And I think that's especially true for people with mental illness. The way that we're going to change public attitudes towards mental illness is when more people with mental illness come out at work so that their coworkers understand what's possible for somebody with mental illness. Um, and the sad reality is that the vast majority of people with mental illness don't feel safe coming out at work. And part of the reason they don't feel safe is because of the media depictions of people with mental illness. Oh, that is so true. Um, and, you know, it's in my office, my corporate office, we have several people with mental health diagnosis, and, and they talk about it. But they talk about it because they know that, you know, obviously, CEOs, epilepsy, we all have different disabilities. You know, this is what I do with my life, finding employment for people with disabilities. So they feel very free uh, to talk about it. But, you know, one of the issues is that if a person is afraid, and trust me, I can't begin to tell you how many people have said to me, oh, I would never let them know this. Uh, you know, I'm not saying, Joyce, I would have before, but now, you know, I won't even think about it because of this idea that then I'm going to shoot someone or kill someone. And here's the problem. Then they don't 
self-identify, you know, they don't go tell uh, the company, yes, I have this disability, meaning I need an accommodation. So then when something happens, there is no recourse. Well, and Joyce, you know, I would just add, I have met a number of people over the course of my career who work in disability organizations. You know, Bender Consulting Service is a disability organization. AUCD is a disability organization. But I've met a number of people who work in disability organizations who still don't feel comfortable self-identifying with mental illness, even in a disability organization. So, you know, I think this is a problem that uh, we have to deal with as a society and as employers whether we're a disability organization or not, we need to try to create an environment where people feel safe coming out with their mental health diagnoses, feel safe asking for an accommodation, um, and, and understand that mental illness, like other disabilities, is a natural part of human diversity, and that mental illness is going to exist in your workforce no matter what. So the issue is, what are you doing as an employer to make sure that your employees with mental illness are getting the support they need to be as effective and productive as they can be. And if everybody's afraid to talk about it, then they're not going to be getting that support. Right, and uh, I agree with what you were talking about earlier that uh, Chris says frequently, which is, you know, you can't change the way people think until you hire people. Uh, with disabilities, which is true, but now we have to go back even further, uh, you know, with people being open to talking about having a mental health issue because of the great fear that is involved. I mean, do you have any advice for people, you know, dealing with this issue, not wanting to uh, uh, self-identify, you know, wanting to keep this a secret? Do you have any advice for them? Well, you know, I mean, I think, Joyce, if you think about how somebody develops a reputation in a new work environment, you go through a period of kind of proving yourself to your employer. And I think for somebody with depression or bipolar disorder or anxiety or any of these common mental health conditions, um, sometimes you're better off proving yourself and branding yourself in this new work environment as a good worker and then introducing the diagnosis so that the diagnosis doesn't color the initial impression of you as a new employee. But if you need an accommodation from day one, you don't have the luxury of waiting. You know, So I think sometimes it depends on whether you need an accommodation and what kind of an accommodation. But I think to the extent that you don't need an accommodation from day one, there's some benefit to establishing your capacity as a worker and proving yourself and building that, you know, personal brand in that work environment and then introducing the fact that you have a mental illness after people have already seen your capacity as a worker. Oh, I agree with you 100%. I mean, I wish I could say, oh, no, just go disclose this at the beginning, but, you know, if you're an advocate, okay, that's good. But let me just tell you, there's a reason 70% of people with disabilities are not counted in the workforce. I like the idea better of going in, performing, uh, because then it's like, hey, 
look at a great job I did. What's this have to do with having a disability, especially in this area? But, you know, on the other hand, if you're an advocate and, you know, you feel comfortable, that's great. Uh, but then you have to just make sure you're in a safe environment where you feel comfortable. And one good sign will be if the company's hiring people with disabilities. So, you know, remember, keep your eye out for that because that says a lot. Uh, and, Andy, one thing before we end the show today that I wanted to talk about is your upcoming conference, the AUCD conference. Could you talk about that for our listeners, tell them about it, when it's going to be, uh, and what happens at the conference? Sure. But if it's okay, Joyce, I just want to go back for a second to the issue of kind of how you talk about or when you talk about your your mental health disability. The other thing I want to emphasize is it's important as a person with a, uh, any kind of a disability to be able to talk about it in a way that makes other people comfortable. So it's not just when do you tell the employer, but it's also how do you tell the employer. And if you're comfortable in your own skin and you can kind of break it down and focus on what's important for the employer to know, you know, like if you need an accommodation, what is the accommodation? Or if, if there are other things that help you perform better at work. Like I'll just give you an example for me. Part of the problem with bipolar disorder is when I'm depressed, I tend to undervalue my performance. And when I have my high energy or my hypomania, I can sometimes overvalue my performance. So one of the most important accommodations for me is just getting regular performance appraisals. Um, and, you know, I, when I was at APD, you know, I made that clear to the board. I wanted to have an annual performance appraisal, so I had some external assessment of whether you know, I was doing better than I thought when I was depressed or whether there was stuff I still needed to work on, even though I, I might not have been aware of it when I had my high energy. So I just think kind of how you talk about your disability matters. I just wanted to add that. Yeah, I, I'm glad you did. And you know what? I just wanted to also mention that uh, veterans with post-traumatic stress disorder go through this same thing because I have had customers or new potential customers say to me, now it's not me, but some other people here, they're nervous about hiring someone with post-traumatic stress disorder because you know we see what happens. And my answer to that is, really? Well, guess what? You already have people with post-traumatic stress disorder working here right now because a woman that's been sexually assaulted or a man or someone that has seen any traumatic event lives or can live with post-traumatic stress disorder. It's just they aren't telling you. But that's uh, another group, Andy, that goes through the same thing. No question. You know, one of my senior staff here at AUCD has post-traumatic stress disorder. She's one of my top performers. Um, she actually wrote a competitive grant after I started here that we won, and we were competing with some pretty um, strong competition, and that enabled us to hire Michael Gamble McCormick, who's our Associate Executive Director for Research and Policy, who also worked for Senator Harkin. So, I mean, she's a great example of somebody, if, if she wasn't here, I wouldn't have had the money to hire Michael, and if I didn't have Michael here, we wouldn't be doing a lot of the great stuff that we're doing, and that all happened because of somebody with post-traumatic stress disorder. So, 
I completely agree with you that it's a high incidence condition and the level of ignorance in our society about that condition and stereotypes uh, makes it hard for people to be out at work. Um, anyway, going back to your, your question about um, our annual conference. So, um, Joyce, this is something that we did not have when I was at AAPD, so I'm learning how to have an annual conference every year, and it's a lot of fun. Um, we, last year we had about 850 people from around the United States uh, and the territories. And by the way, we do have a University Center for Excellence in all of the territories, in Guam, American Samoa, the Commonwealth of the Northern Marianas Islands, Puerto Rico, and the U.S. Virgin Islands. So these folks all come to our conference in addition to the folks from our centers around the continental United States and Alaska and Hawaii. And then we have a lot of guests who come who aren't part of our network but who are interested in accessing the content that we have at the conference. Um, So we have people presenting on their research. We have people presenting on policy initiatives that they're working on. Um, Last year, we had a really fun uh, plenary session where Charlie Lakin, who's the former head of the National Institute on Disability and Rehabilitation Research, he interviewed DJ Patil, who is the chief data scientist of the United States who works at the White House, and he interviewed him about big data and kind of what are the implications of big data for people with disabilities and for disability policy, and it was really, really interesting. so uh, the conference this year is going to be December 5th to the 7th. If people want more information about the conference or anything else that we've talked about, our website is aucd.org. Again, AUCD stands for the Association for University Centers on Disabilities. Um, but uh, the conference this year, I think, is going to be happening at a particularly interesting time in Washington because it will be after the election. So we'll be in the process of transitioning to a new administration. And I think it's going to be an exciting time in Washington with a lot of change happening, kind of people working on the transition team. And I think it's a great time for us all to come together and think about, okay, we we know the results of the election. We know kind of what we're dealing with in terms of the new administration. What is our agenda as a community for this new administration? What do we want to do in employment, education, healthcare, transportation, housing, you name it? Uh, this will be a great time for us to have 850 people from around the country in town kind of working together and thinking together about, um, you know, what's our vision for the future. The theme for the conference this year is navigating change, uh, building our future together. And we feel like that's a good theme in the context of a transition. And, Andy, can people still register then to go? Yes. So um, we just closed the request for proposal period. So, And I'm happy to report to you, Joyce, that we had uh, more proposals for this conference than we have ever had. Uh, by over, We had an over 20% increase in wow, proposals awesome. from last year. So there's a lot of interest in presenting at the conference, which is great. And the attendance at the conference keeps going up. Uh, at a healthy clip each year. So we may end up with over 900 people this year. Um, but yes, the, the registration um, deadline is not until much closer to the conference. So there's plenty of time for people to register 
And, um, you know, I, I think it's one of the most uh, interesting conferences if you're, if for people who are interested in learning about what is the latest research, what are some of the cutting-edge models for employment, for education, uh, for health care, for early childhood, um, and then just being around a lot of very smart people with good values who are trying to change the world for people with disabilities. The other conference in Washington that I love, and I know, Joyce, you've been to it many times, is the National Council on Independent Living Conference, which is coming up. It's actually this month. Um, so from my perspective, if you're going to go to two conferences in Washington, go to Nickel and go to AUCD. Uh, and I think they both are really extraordinary opportunities to meet a lot of great people. And I agree with you. And that is December 5th through 7th, is that right? Yes. AUCD.org. Yes. Okay, everyone, check it out. You can still register. you got a ways to go here, so um, I'm, I'm sure it will be a dynamic, great conference. So, Andy, before we close the show, a couple of last questions. We were talking about AUCD. Over the past year, which would be 2015, uh, what, what do you believe was your greatest accomplishment in the organization? Well, I guess, you know, I'll answer that in two ways. First, last year, as you well know, Joyce, was the 25th anniversary of the Americans with Disabilities Act and the 40th anniversary of the special education law. It was also the 50th anniversary of the Medicaid statute and the Voting Rights Act. Um, so it was a pretty extraordinary year for us as a community. And what I'm proud of is AUCD's role in collaborating with other disability organizations to celebrate the anniversaries. You know, I mean, we we connected with Mark Johnson and the Disability Legacy Project work that he was spearheading in Atlanta. Uh, we supported, you know, the Consortium for Citizens with Disabilities here in Washington. Kim Mushineau, who is our uh, policy director, is now the chair of the Consortium for Citizens with Disabilities. So we've done a lot of work with that coalition. Um, and, you know, just in general, I, you know, Joyce, you and I probably went to at least 20 different anniversary celebrations over the course of the year, but it was an exciting year, you know, and I think our centers at the ground level and AUCD at the national level really tried to plug in and support what the community was doing. You know, the bus tour that Tom Olin was leading stopped at a lot of our university centers. So, I, you know, I'm proud of our network for being a good partner with the rest of the disability community and using the anniversary to help tell the story of what have we accomplished as a civil rights movement for people with disabilities and what have what do we have yet to do. Um, but, you know, the other thing that happened last year that I'm really, really excited about is we launched, and it's, it's not unlike Disability Matters with Joyce Bender, we launched a weekly... Uh, YouTube series called Tuesdays with Liz, where Liz Weintraub, who's a woman uh, with a disability on our staff, interviews people each week who are involved in the policy process and uh, asks them questions and tries to make what they're doing and what they're working on accessible for a broad audience, including people with intellectual disabilities who are interested in policy. And she has a huge following. Uh, I think you know she's interviewed 
uh, Congressman Chris Van Hollen. She's interviewed Senator Harkin. She interviewed the chairman of the Federal Communications Commission. She's interviewed a number of other Obama appointees. She's interviewed White House people like Maria Town and Taryn Williams. Um, and we're in the process of setting up an interview with uh, Valerie Jarrett, which will be amazing. So, um, you know, I, that series, I think, is helping take what happens in Washington and broadcasting it out to a national audience in a format that is accessible for people that don't have a lot of professional training or policy expertise. And I think it's a revolutionary thing, and I'm just so proud of Liz Weintraub for really jumping on this opportunity and doing a wonderful job. Well, Andy, that is awesome. Um, and, and, you know, before we close the show here, thank you again for being with us today. I always enjoy having you as a guest on the show. Well, thank you, Joyce. It was my pleasure, and I, I really thank you for your leadership and for doing this show for 11 years. Well, we end every show with a quote, um, and here is our quote today. Most disabled people would tell you that the biggest concerns they have around the workplace are not around physical accessibility. They're more around attitude. I think it's easier to legislate and see change around bricks and mortar than it is around attitude, said Andy Imperato. This is Joyce Bender, America's Voice, where disability matters at Voice America. Dot com. Talk to you next week. Voice America would like to thank you for tuning in. Please join us next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific time for another installment of Disability Matters right here on the Internet Leader and Talk Radio, voiceamerica.com. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.